Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial and podcast on the WWWs on, on the web. It's good to have your company here. I'm afraid Jean's away for this week, so she's on off away on other business, but she'll be back again next week as per normal. But it's just me, Rob, in the studio here today, but nevertheless, she's passed on a great deal of research that she's done for me to share with you listeners. Because on the Dogs Program, we deal with news issues, reviews and interviews relating to public education and the need for its defence here in Australia. I know it's a strange thing that public education needs to be defended, but 3CR and Community Radio, that's what we have to do because we need to do it. There's a couple of issues uh, that we'll be discussing today on the Dogs Program. have a bit of music in between as well. Um, certainly we're going to talk about the anniversary, an anniversary in Australia this week of the NAPLAN test. Um, it's been around for 10 years now, and um, we'll be touching base with Chris Bonner to find out what he has to say about its success or otherwise. NAPLAN, of course, is where we go around the entire country and test all the children, because as we know in this modern world, if the thing's worth doing, it's worth assessing well, and damned how it's done, it's how it's assessed that matters. And NAPLAN is a reflection of this. Um, not only is it just testing the children, it's testing all the children, across the nation, giving them the one test to find out if they're smarter or dumber than they were the year before. Um, it's also used for international comparisons, but as a number, the NAPLAN test produces all sorts of strange social results, and um, we're going to hear today from Chris Bonner in terms of what he has to say about that. Later in the program, we'll be crossing over to America. In America, they have real problems. Um, if you follow the news at all, you realise that um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a revolution going on in the United States of America. The leader of the free world um, has said and done some things that a lot of his population aren't happy with. And so that, if, ever, if ever that happens through history, um, if it, you tend to get revolutions. And there is one going on in America at the moment. And in particular, there's an education revolution. Um, Donald Trump, yes, I'll say it again. Donald Trump is the President of the United States of America. Um, and he is a businessman, so he basically set up a situation in America where he wants businesses, because he's a businessman, to run the education system. And to this end, he's appointed a woman called Betsy DeVos as his education secretary with a mind to privatising all of the education in America. Um, this is playing out in a very cruel way for the children of America, and the teachers' unions in particular in America um, are, are fighting they're not just fighting on the sidelines, they're, they're having a revolution. It's a full-on war in education over in America, and it's only going to get worse. 
between the government, represented by DeVos, and the unions. And we'll be reporting in detail on what's going on there in, in the United States. So, a couple of things. Anniversary of NAPLAN here in Australia, and then we'll talk about the war going on inside the United States when it comes to education. You're listening to The Dogs Program. Do you live in Darabin? Darabin Council is here to help you in whichever language you speak. If you have a question about your rates, rubbish collection or any council matter, call us on our multilingual telephone line on 8470-8470 to speak with one of our officers or an interpreter. Or you can visit us at our office in Preston, Reservoir or Northcote. Call us on 8470-8470 or come and see us. A 3CR supporter. 3CR Breakfast would like to say thanks to program sponsor The New International Bookshop for the financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall at 54 Victoria Street, Carlton.
Welcome back to the Dogs Program on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. Uh, one of my personal favourites, happy that might be playing, it's Dido's Lament by Henry Purcell. Well, lament is one way you could describe what we do here at the Dogs Program, lamenting what the government does to attack the public school system. But we fight, and things are improving. Um, but things can only improve if, if the people of Australia are informed, which is why we're here, to defend government schools, to give you another perspective. Um, Chris Bonner. We, um, the regular listeners of the program will know who Chris Bonner is. He's a, he's a public education activist and an ex-principal, um, and he's worked many years with uh, Bernie Shepherd as well. Um, he's published something on John Menadue's blog, Pearls and Irritations, um, about NAPLAN, because according to Chris Bonner, quite rightly, he informs us all, and he's right, that NAPLAN, the testing of all the children across Australia, has just turned 10. And um, he's got a little summary about what that means for the children and for the systems of education. He says, NAPLAN is not unlike some kids I've known. Conceived in haste as a result of a rush of blood, a bit of an erratic upbringing from a variety of guardians, confusion as to the purpose in life, and fervent hopes that he, she or it will turn out right in the end. Each year there's a birthday, accompanied by a mixture of hand-wringing, pious hopes and future plans that might show it was all worthwhile. Anyway, he goes on to say that that plan actually has its good points. We need to assess school students on what they know and what they need to know, and to ensure that teachers act on the information the assessment provides. From memory, basic skills testing began, certainly in New South Wales, in the mid-1990s, when the then Premier, Bob Carr, uh, who was called the Education Premier back in those days, who apparently invented homework, according to him. Um, yes, so that was back in the 90s when Bob Carr invented this sort of memories basic skills test. Yes, the idea was centuries old, but much of the analysis and follow-up on the testing was new. Just as important, the results were kept within schools. Just as important, I repeat, the results were kept within schools for the purpose of improving students' achievements. A decade later, the NAPLAN child thing was conceived on a national scale. The tests were, and are, excellent, and provide invaluable information, albeit months later, for schools and for teachers to be used in the school. But the focus on students' achievement was elevated beyond the school, to the national level, and the purpose of NAPLAN was hijacked by, yes, you guessed it, politicians. They, the politicians, were driven by the economic imperative of education and the need for Australia to perform on an international school scale, which today we call PISA, the Programme of International Student Assessment, PISA. Now, according to the politicians' script, the pathway to this lay in publishing school NAPLAN schools for all to see, and hence drive school improvement through school choice and competition. To enable this to happen, they launched to the, what, they, what we now call the My School website so that parents could shop around and, in Julia Gillard's words, go and rouse, rouse on their child's school principal if the school wasn't achieving. In effect, NAPLAN became part of the neoliberal agenda for schools. There have been many consequences for schools and for Australia, including a lack of any significant measurable improvement in student achievement. Every NAPLAN August birthday is accompanied by stories about plateauing achievement, winning and losing states, apportioning blame and entreaties to do better. NAPLAN test scores 
are resembling what international testing is saying about student achievement in Australia. The unhappy consequences of this are well known. In effect, the high stakes recurrent testing of students across a narrow range of domains is redefining what schools are and is redefining what schools do. NAPLAN is less a tool to support learning and is increasingly becoming the purpose of the school itself. It impacts on the subjects offered, so goodbye to cultural electives, hello to basics, ad infinitum, and to relationships between professionals and between schools. It distorts priorities at all levels. Even the much vaulted competition between schools becomes less about improving school quality and more about capturing inputs, especially the right students, that will produce the best results. Now, leaving aside what Chris Bonner said, I would add to this. NAPLAN encourages all the, st- all the stakeholders, the parents, the kids, the teachers, the systems, the schools and the, and, and the government itself, to see education as a zero-sum game. That is, you have a number of inputs, that's the kids, and you poach the best ones you can to make your school the best. And that's what you do to protect the rights of your school, to protect the rights of your family, to protect the rights of your child. And if that's at the expense of someone else, then that other person can just go to hell. They can just be damned. Who cares? Some say that scoring high in a NAPLAN test amounts to a solid preparation for success. But disconnected drilling to score well in tests isn't learning for life. The tests and the school culture they create do very little to engender a love of learning and what goes with it, which is relevance, connectedness, resilience and the belief that when your world falls apart, learning can help put it back together, especially in our unpredictable and rapidly changing job market. Now, The key to effective learning is engagement. Without this engagement, not much else will happen, including NAPLAN improvements. There is now ample evidence of critical levels of disengagement between schools and their students, but few are joining the jots between the mounting crisis and a worsening, not only of NAPLAN results, but of the existing measures of a disengagement, including, in, obviously, student behaviour, student attendance and student retention, as well as student achievement. Small wonders that the best innovations in school focus on engagement, also in defiance of the depressing NAPLAN teaching and training culture. Of course, there are ironies surrounding the current predominance of NAPLAN testing and the availability of the school-level results on my school. In contrast to the scores released each year by the ACARA, ACARA, and the sporting competition reports of these in the media, A deeper analysis shows a worsening of two key problems that won't see NAPLAN or much else improving in the short term. The first is the divergence not only between states, but between the achievers, that is, those who aren't doing much better, and the strugglers who are doing worse. This problem is now institutionalised in our framework of schools. It increasingly consigns the strugglers to our most disadvantaged schools, something which has to stop if we are to lift overall levels of achievement. All the testing and measurement in the world won't lift these kids. The second is the endemic nature of disengagement in our schools at all levels, regardless of location, 
regardless of sector and regardless of class, or even indeed how rich your parents are. It goes to the heart of underachievement and challenges the effectiveness of how we actually do school. The way out of this is to rethink why we have schools in the first place. What designs of learning exist that will touch all students and how can we make it happen? And amidst all this, what is the role and the purpose of any testing? There might be some light on the horizon in the form of the Gonski 2.0 review. It has been tasked with examining evidence and making recommendations on the most effective teaching and learning strategies and initiatives to be deployed in our schools. Sounds good. Almost in the class of letting thousand flowers bloom. But then comes a killer. All this is in the context of improving student outcomes in Australia's national performance, as measured by the National and International Assessment of Student Achievement. The tail will just go on wagging the dog. Get ready for another ten years of unhappy, unhappy NAPLAN birthdays. I was quoting there from Chris Bonner, who's a fellow of the Centre for Policy Development and an ex-principal and um, an uh, advocate for state schools, but also an advocate for good education. What he was writing there was on John Menadieu's blog, Pearls and Irritations. But I think there's a couple of things that have been highlighted by what Chris Bonner said in there, and I just, I've highlighted one. I'd like to highlight another. He says, there is, in fact, a conundrum deep at the heart of what's going on. The more you test something in terms of the achievement of students across a narrow base of, of, of curriculum stuff, the more you test them, the less you're going to make any impact and difference because the test becomes the result in itself. The school becomes an institution for producing good NAPLAN results. And in the process of producing good NAPLAN results, it reduces teaching all the things which, in fact, improve NAPLAN. And it's, it, it is a conundrum because when you do that, you disengage the students from the school because teaching for a good NAPLAN result is not a very interesting thing for a student to be doing, which means it disengages them from the process of learning, which then leads to poorer NAPLAN results. I don't know if anyone out there has ever been in the same situation as I am, is you get angry and angry and angry at a situation. You get angry until you're, until you're about to explode and you shout and you scream and you know as you're shouting and you're screaming that your shouting and your screaming is actually not making it better, it's making the situation worse. And so you don't. You try. You have discipline. You say, right, okay, well, I'm not going to shout and scream in this particular situation, no matter the, the fact that I am fuming, because I know that to do that will actually just make it worse. It's called discipline. And it's what teachers, as professionals, are trained to do. They are trained to spot engagement. They are trained to harness engagement. They are trained to put the engagement of a child in harness for the service of learning. And as soon as you whack down a big NAPLAN test in the middle of the year, you have to put all that aside Start working on this whole sort of school versus school NAPLAN test, which actually now, in the Australian context, does matter. You can't ignore it, because if you ignore it, you'll end up in one of those schools that is known to have poor NAPLAN results, which means the parents won't send their child there, which means you have a school which is failing, and the school fails, and it just it goes round and round in circles. It would be love to say, oh, I don't care about NAPLAN, just ignore it. But that's not the way the situation's been set up. That's like running a horse race, say, I, I, my horse is very fast, but I'm not going to make them run around in circles. We're just going to run in a paddock and we're not going to race against everyone else. The whole situation with education is that we haven't got a whole series of children who are having 
their lives improve through education. We have a series of children that are put into schools which are by definition a horse race and they win or they lose and the score that they get on the NAPLAN score defines, <laughs> defines the quality level and, and, and culture in their education. It's all a strange and horrible paradox. Chris Bonner, I think, has highlighted something very, I don't know, important there. But just to say, uh, with Chris Bonner, he, he's worth listening to. And there are, in fact, not just him, but other people. One of whom is the Emeritus Professor of Education at Stanford University, a fellow called Larry Cuban. Um, and he has very similar ideas, which we'll be um, highlighting after these messages. <laughs> Great Voices CDs on 3CR. These CDs are a unique collection. Now you can go to 3cr.org.au and you can order online all the 20 CDs, 15 issues, for $160 postage pay. Or check the individual issues and read each track on it. Every major singer is on there. You'll be excited and entranced. Go to 3cr.org.au now and check out the wonderful Great Voices CDs. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR, 855 on the AM dial. It's good to have your company um, as we go through issues in education, uh, private, public, state, and indeed just good education here on 3CR. Um, we've been listening to what Chris Bonner has to say about NAPLAN results, but I'd like to pull out, a, pull out the lens a little bit further. Pull out and we can have a, just some wise words about what it is that makes a good school, state, public, anything you like across the world. And Larry Cuban, the Emeritus Professor of Education at Stanford University, offers that there are several principles that have guided the thinking and actions of himself as a scholar, blogger, practitioner, teacher, um, and educator over the years. Um, and the first one is that although public schools are essentially conservative institutions which are committed to reinforce and pass on sanctioned knowledge and community values, they do change. And they have done so for decades. Schools are not fossils in Australia or around the world, and they're not preserved in amber. And they both change, um, if we're the good and the bad, and the stability sort of goes up and down. And it's a mark of where the public schools' taxes come and go from. He says that public schools in general are dynamically conservative institutions that embrace change to maintain stability. Now, changes in public schools come from both the outside and the inside, according to Larry Cuban. 
basically, public schools are political institutions totally dependent upon taxpayers and voters and therefore vulnerable to social and economic gusts of reforms that blow across various nations. Those winds of reform, however, lose force as they settle into the conservative institutions that are the schools. Administrators and teachers adapt organisational, governance, curricular and instructional reforms and alter them as they move across the classrooms. Now, this can be seen playing out in Australia in terms of the chaplaincy debate. It was Chaplains were foistered on state schools by John Howard back in the early 2000s. Um, there's still a problem and they're still backwards and forwards, but functionally the school itself, or many state schools who have chaplains in them, because that's the only way they can get any money <laughs> into the school at all is through the chaplaincy program, are using these chaplains very often in conservative ways, although the proselytising nature of religious people in state schools has always and continues to, to actually um, provide a lot of concern for a lot of parents. But again, keeping the lens sort of out and not getting into the sort of nitty-gritty, he says there is in fact, this is Mr Cuban, or Professor Cuban, no single way of teaching works best with all students. Now, I don't know how many of our listeners are teachers, but you know this is the case. Even if you're a parent, you know this is the case, certainly if you have more than one child, that no single way of teaching works best with all students. Because students differ in motivations, in interests and abilities, using a wide repertoire of approaches in lessons is actually essential, always has been. All the way back to Plato. Direct instruction, small groups, whole group guided discussions, student choices, worksheets, research papers, project-based instruction, using software, etc., etc., all need to be used in the toolkit of every teacher. There are, of course, reform-driven, policy-making donors and researchers who try to alter how and what is going on inside classrooms. Things like Common Core Standards, the National Curriculum Standards and Frameworks, the addition of computer science and coding to the curriculum, the newest version of new maths, new science, new histories, all similar inventions spill forth from both local, state and federal policymakers. When the reforms as teachers adhere to a certain best way of teaching, regardless of context, you have problems. I'll say that again. When you adhere to a certain way which is best for teaching all students for all subjects, you get problems. Always have, always will. And he says, in classrooms, small and slow changes in classroom practice occur often. They're there. Fundamental and rapid changes in practice very seldom happen. Now, while well-intentioned reformers seek to dramatically alter how teachers teach, reading, math, science, history, and all the other subjects, some 180-degree changes in the world of the classroom, or hospitals, or therapist's office, or even in law enforcement, in all forms of public, public service, they very seldom occur. Over the decades, experienced teachers have become allergic, to, often to reformers, um, who claim fast and deep changes that was going to happen overnight in what teachers are supposed to be doing daily in their classrooms. Also, school structures influence instruction. In a very broad level, the age-graded school structure, which is a 19th century innovation that is now universally cemented into Australia's K-12 schooling across both Australia, the US, and also most, most of Europe. And what happens in classrooms, in expected and unexpected ways, depends on the context. Teachers adapt to this grammar of schooling in following a schedule as they prepare 50 or 40 or hour-long lessons in separate classrooms covering chunks of what's required to be learnt by the students in any particular grade or subject in secondary schools. Age-graded structures harnessed to accountability regulations have demanded that teachers prepare students for high-stakes annual tests within this procedure. Students require teachers to judge each student 
as to whether the student will be passed at the end of a school year based upon their age. Schools and district structures like age-graded schools, um, but these have intended and unintended influences on what and how things are taught. Also, teachers' involvement in instructional reform is, has been going on for some time. Again, from the mid-19th century through the early decades into today, no instructional reform imposed upon teachers has been adopted by most teachers and used in lessons that was in the way it was intended. It's never happened. Every top-down classroom reform program ever in history has failed. All of them. And efforts to alter the way teachers do things by, with a top-down process um, never, ever work. But things do change, and they change obviously from the bottom up. Now, examples range from the Denver curriculum reforms in the 1920s, um, in the 1930s there was stuff going on, in the 60s, in the 80s, in the 90s, and even in 2000s when teachers are starting to run schools. Reforms aimed at altering dramatically classroom instruction always fail. The change happens slowly and incrementally driven by the teachers in the school in response to their school communities. Now, these are the main principles that guide his views, this particular professor's views, on the way schools should be reformed. Now, if you have slow changes and incremental change which reflect as part of a conservative structure in a school, what you need in those situations is for a centralised education system or bureaucracy to support the teachers in that. And that's the one thing in Australia that we have actually gotten rid of. We don't have centralised bureaucracies in Australia anymore when it comes to education and education funding. There is only one centralised education bureaucracy left of worth anything anymore in Australia. And that, of course, is, an, is, is the several and various Catholic education offices all around the country in each state. Whenever you hear about education reforms, you never hear about money being taken away from the bureaucracies of the Catholic school system because, well, no, you can't talk about that. You can only talk about cutting red tape when it comes to the public school system, which I've always found disappointing. Um, I'm sure Jean will talk about this next week. She finds this deeply disappointing because the bureaucratic structures of the Catholic Church are fundamentally opaque when it comes to, comes to education practices in Australia. Um, all you have to do is ask the Auditor General in Victoria when he went to try and find out where the money is spent. The Catholic Education Office told him to, um, to get lost. Same thing happened in New South Wales a couple of years ago. Once taxpayers' money goes into the Catholic education system, we, the taxpayers, have no idea how it's spent, um, and we're not allowed to know, according to um, the various Catholic Education Offices, because that would be an infringement, of course, on their religious liberties. Strange argument, I know, in this day and age in 2017, the religious liberty argument when it comes to how taxpayers' money is spent, but that's what they have. That's the one that they use. You're listening to The Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on AM Dials. Great to have your company. Um, as you probably noticed, Jean's not here this week, but she'll be back again next week. She's off doing some more research on the defence of government schools. So she's not in the studio today, but she'll be back again next week. But um, I promised you um, we'd be talking about the, the war, the education wars that are now kicked, kicking off in the United States. Uh, this is important to us here in Australia because whatever happens there tends to happen here three years later. So it's good to look into the future and find out what's going on in the war between teachers' unions and Betsy DeVos, the Education Secretary over in the United States. We'll be continuing on with the dogs after a little bit of music.
Again, welcome back to the Dogs Program. That's Schubert impromptu there. Here on the Dogs, we are the defenders of government schools. A bit of pleasant music there to calm us all down before we get into the war that's going on in the United States. Um, yeah, it's not just Charlottesville. It's not just North Korea. It's not just Trump going to war with Venezuela. Um, there's a war going on inside the United States. In fact, it's an educational civil war. And quite frankly, in an article on the Washington Post, uh, printed by Valerie Strauss, she highlights that there's in fact no more pretending to play nice between the Education Secretary, Betsy DeVos, and the American Federation of Teachers President, Randy Weingarten. Now, back in April, the two, that's Randy and Betsy, visited a traditional public school in Ohio together in what was a short-lived experiment in getting to know you between Betsy and the head of the American, I should say, Federation of Teachers. Now, they were supposed to visit Charter School together too. But on the Thursday after the visit to the state school, Weingarten gave a blistering speech at her union's convention in Washington calling DeVos an ideologue who wants to destabilise and privatise the public schools that millions of Americans value and rely upon. A few hours later after the vast, DeVos went after the teachers' unions and the, Australian, uh, the American Federation of Teachers in particular in a speech she then gave in Denver to the American Legislative Executive Council, a powerful conservative organisation of lobbyists and state legislators. DeVos accused the unions of being defenders of the status quo who care only about school systems and not about individual children. She mentioned and, and had displayed that the American Federation of Teachers tweet criticising her for saying that public money should be invested in individual students and arguing instead that we should invest in the great system of great public schools for all kids. DeVos says she said, I couldn't believe it when I read it, but you have to admire their candour. They've made it clear that they care more about a system, one, one created in the 1800s, than they do about individual students. Wow, that's about as disingenuous a statement as you can get, but there you go. She's working for President Trump, so she has to get her cues from somewhere. Now, President Trump and DeVos have made it clear that their chief educational priority is to expand what they call school choice, including privately run charter schools, vouchers and similar programs that use public money to pay for private and religious school education. They both have criticised the traditional public school system, America's most important civic institution, which educates the vast majority of the country's schoolchildren. So, Trump and DeVos are at war with public schools. They want to get rid of them. They want to privatise the lot. They want to use this using the mantra of school choice, and they want to set up charter schools, set up voucher systems, and they want to increase the religious schools and their education, funded by the government. So it's war. Weingarten then said in her speech that defenders of America's public education system are in a David versus Goliath battle. And in this battle, we are all David. While the unions contribute a good deal of money to candidates and causes they support, she was setting up a union members that is David's against the ultra-wealthy philanthropists, including DeVos, a Michigan billionaire and sister to the, to the owner of uh, Blackwater Security, have been financially supporting efforts to expand school choice, vouchers and privatising education for years and years. Weingarten said that the term choice was, decades ago, used to cloak over racism by segregationist politicians like Harry Byrd, who launched a massive opposition to the Brown versus Brown Education Supreme Court decision. And she said... After the Brown decision, 
Many school districts, especially in the South, resisted integration. In Virginia, white officials in Prince Edward County closed every public school in the district rather than have white and black children go to school together. They opened private schools where only white parents could choose to send their children and they did all of that using public money. One garden acknowledged that some public schools do not live up to the promise of providing a good education for every child. She says, we get that public schools are not perfect and that everyone doesn't always work for every one of its students. We know that schools in America have always been unequal, often based on, yes, race and class. But I've never heard a parent say, she said, that school doesn't work for my kid, so I want to engage in an ideologically driven market-based experiment that commodifies education and has been proven to be ineffective. She says, yes, there's problems, but is privatisation going to fix them? And the answer, according to Weingarten and here at the Dogs, is no. No. Most of the time, parents want a neighbourhood public school that works for their child. They want their child to feel safe. They want the school to have adequate resources and small enough class sizes. They want their school to have music. They want their school to have art classes and science classes. They want their child to soar in challenging classes and get support when they struggle. They want their child to fill the dinner table conversations with stories about what they did at school that day. Earlier this month, the president of the national's largest labour union, Lily Eskinson Garcia of the National Education Association, told delegates at her organisation's annual gathering that they would not work with the Trump administration because the President and DeVos could not be trusted to do what is in the best interest of children. She labelled DeVos the Queen of for-profit privatisation of public education. The two major teacher unions, which together represent several million people, have been quick to oppose the Trump administration. It took a lot longer for them to take issue with the Obama administration's education reform policies, but both eventually did calling for the ousting of Arne Duncan, who was then the Education Secretary for seven years under President Barack Obama. Here, here's weird, actually, here's a copy, just a, an extract, of Weirgarten's speech. On that, that, that time she was speaking about uh, Betsy DeVos, which was prepared for delivery and provided, um, this speech was actually provided to um, the AFT, which of course is the Washington Post. She said, in an introduction describing her day with Betsy, She says, I know many of you have just arrived in Washington, and you can understand why we call it a swamp, but let me start by taking you on a trip to a town in Ohio called Van Vert. Like many rural towns in America, Van Vert has grown increasingly Republican, and in the November 2016 election it went overwhelmingly Republican. Does that mean that the people of Van Vert agree with everything Donald Trump and Betsy DeVos are trying to do, like end public schools? as we know them, in favour of vouchers and privatisation, and making education a commodity. Not in the least. The people of Van Vert are proud of their public schools. They've invested in pre-K and project-based learning. They have a nationally recognised robotics team and a community school program that helps at-risk kids graduate. 96% of students in Van Vert in the district graduate from high, from high school. And in America, that's a very high number. This community understands that Title I is not simply a budget line, but a lifeline. And she said, why am I telling you about this town, Van Vert? Because these are the schools I wanted Betsy DeVos to see. Public schools at the heart of the heart of America. 
Unfortunately, just like climate change deniers defy the facts, Betsy DeVos is a public school denier, denying the good in our public schools and their foundational place in our democracy. Her record back in Michigan, now in Washington, makes it clear she is the most anti-public education secretary of education ever in the history of the United States. Betsy DeVos called all public schools a dead end. Our public schools are not dead end. They are places of endless opportunity. They're where 90% of America's parents send their children. And where Secretary DeVos may have thought Van Vert would be a good photo op, my goal, like any educator, was to teach her something. And we did. Great things are happening in our public schools, and with the right support, they can do even better. That's why she saw in, that's why, that's what she saw in Van Vert. And that's what's happening in public schools across the country. Betsy DeVos cannot claim ignorance to what's happening in public schools. She can only claim to be indifferent. So in America, how did we get here? It didn't just happen last election day when Trump became the president or the inauguration. The moment we're in is the result of an intentional, decades-long campaign to protect the economic and political power of the few against the rights of the many. It's taken the form of division, expressing itself as racism, sexism, classism, xenophobia and homophobia. And its intentions are often disguised. For example, take the word choice. You hear it all the time these days, school choice. Betsy DeVos used it in practically every sentence. You could show her, as I did, an awkward, an award-winning robotics program, and she'd say, but what about the choice? What she actually said, you could probably say, good morning, Betsy, and she'd say, well, that's my choice. She must love restaurant buffets, Betsy DeVos. But let me get really serious. Decades ago, the term choice was used to cloak over racism by segregation politicians in the Brown decision, um, because choice was used in terms of basically generating educational apartheid in America's South. But by 1963, African-American students had been locked out of Prince Edward County Public Schools for five years. Now, the AFT members sent funds and school supplies, and some travelled to New York and Philadelphia to set up schools for African-American students in church basements and public parks so these students could have an, ex- have, have, have an education. But what about the schools Betsy DeVos appallingly calls pioneers of school choices, that is, historically black colleges and universities? They actually arose from the discriminatory practices that denied black students access to higher education in America. Make no mistake, the real pioneers of private school choice were the white politicians who resisted school integration, but neither facts nor history seemed to matter to the administration. Now, in March in 2017, DeVos gave a speech in Washington. She justified choice by saying, I'm simply in favour of giving parents more and better options to find an environment that will set their child up for success. Well, who could possibly disagree with that? It's not ideological to want a school that works for your kid, it's human. But her preferred choices, the vouchers, traditional tax credits and private for-profit charter schools, don't work. After decades of experiments with voucher programs, the research is clear. They fail most children that purportedly are intended to benefit. Whereas, in fact, the only people they do benefit are the people who have the cards stacked in their favour at the beginning of the game. The Department of Education's own analysis of in, in D.C. voucher program found it to have a negative effect on student achievement overall. 
The Louisiana voucher program led to large decline in students' kids' reading and math scores. Students in Ohio's voucher program did worse than children in traditional public schools. She could go on and on and on. And by the way, DeVos comes from, guess where, Ohio. So parents are promised basic choice, but that's not what they get. Now, she goes on and on and on, quite rightly too, um, talking about all the well-worn arguments about why vouchers are bad and why indeed this is a very worrying thing. But then she goes on and it's actually a war cry. It's nothing more or less than a war cry. She says, while people have always supported public education, what makes the moment different is that now millions of Americans are hungry to fight for something better. And with the daily outrages, the relentless assaults on the values of American democracy, it's hard to know where to begin. But she actually has a manifesto, an educational revolutionary manifesto that she puts at this meeting, which I find absolutely astounding. And this is what she says. She says, if you are a local union president in America, please rise up. If you've been part of some teacher's leader program in a public school in America, you must rise up. If you've participated in, in, in an American Federation of Teachers Professional Development, you now have to rise up. If you've downloaded or uploaded a resource from the teachers um, from the Federation of Teachers website, then you've used, you should rise up. If you've bought school supplies for your students or you've bought food for your hungry child, you must rise up. If you spent sleepless nights worrying about your students, you have to rise up. If you've lobbied for a cause you believe in, now is the time. And if you know, of course, that the union, the teachers' union, can help empower you to make your communities and world better, then you should rise up. It's actually a, it's, it's a manifesto for revolution over there in the United States of America. Now, this was all happened in April. This happened before the events of Charlottesville. This happened before what's actually going on in Australia, oh, sorry, I shouldn't say Australia, what's actually going on in America is a re-segregation. By the way, it's also going on in Australia in terms of our education system. We are resegregating our children based upon their religion because we fund religious schools. We have been doing it for years. It is inevitable that we will separate out our children based upon their religion and indeed based upon their wealth if you have a private school system and a public school system. In America, if you're following the news and what's going on in Charlottesville in terms of the racial relations there, they're resegregating not just on income and not just on religion, they're segregating on race. I can't comment on that in Australia, I have to say, but I know things aren't very good for those people who aren't white and male. That's just always been the case and will continue to be so, I'm sure, and to be fought. But in the educational context, it's very worrying in America, to the point where the unions are now talking about revolution, fighting the government, fighting divorce, fighting Trump, sometimes on the streets, but certainly with their will and protesting to do so. Well, interesting times we live in. Um, you've been listening to the DOGS program, the Defenders of Government Schools, the DOGS. That's what we are. If you're interested in what I've been talking about, please feel free to contact us at our website, www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. But until next week, when we'll be joined again by Dale and Jean, it's from the DOGS. Bye for now. Joe, you're 
ten years dead, I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, just says I, him standing by my bed, they framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I Shot you, Joe, says I. Takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe. I didn't die, says Joe. I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe. What they can never kill went on to organize, went on to organize. From San Diego up to Maine, in every mine and mill, where workers strike and organize, it's there you'll find your hill. Mm-hmm.